Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm your host, Ross Chevalier. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we're going to be talking with my good friend, Fernando Santos. Fernando and I work together as moderators on the Kelby One community. And today we're going to talk about getting started in shooting video with the stills camera that you already have. So without further ado, Let's welcome Fernando and listen to our conversation in episode number 100. Hey gang, really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen into this pre-recorded episode for Make Better Photos and Videos. And today we are going to talk about videos and I am incredibly chuffed to be joined by my dear friend Fernando Santos all the way from Lisbon is an internet connectivity a wonderful thing. How are you doing Nando? I'm good and you Russ? Oh, I'm having a very good day because I'm talking to you. And for folks who <laughs> don't know and who are not members of the Kelpie One community, why not? Because Fernando is the guy who really does all the work when it comes to moderation. I just hang around and look <laughs> menacing. Uh, he does all the work. Uh, we we make a no, good team, I think. We do make a good team. I don't do all the work. You do a lot of work as well as other community leaders. So it's not just me. But you're being kind. Well, I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Fernando had this really good idea, and it really pertains to still photographers, the folks who shoot mostly stills who have great video capability in their camera but we've never really had I would say good formal training on how to get started with video and I've talked to a lot of photographers a lot of my own students and they look go no 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 not going there that looks like I need eye of newt and toe of frog or some other thing to figure out how to make it work and what Fernando suggests is that we have a conversation the way that real folks would for someone who wants to get into video and the kind of questions are going to come up. So full credit to Fernando. It's his brilliant idea. I'm just glad to be here to help. So Fernando, before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, tell folks a little bit about you and where people can find you on the internet. Okay. Well, I'm, um, I'm a still photographer. I don't do video. I do have some knowledge on that. Um, but I don't do video at all, and that's how this all started. I've been photographing for over 15 years in a serious way. Um, and, uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm a Kelby One community leader and uh, moderator, just like you, Russ. Um, so all those folks at Kelby uh, One, Kelby One members know me because I'm very active on the community. And uh, apart from that, I do some workshops here in Portugal for people. I do training in, in Lightroom also. And uh, if you want to find more about me, well, you can go to my website, which is www.fernandosantos.com. Dot com. So that's going to be hard for you. It's uh, S-A-N-T-O-S, the last name. But um, you, you'll find me easily on probably we'll, you'll have notes on the podcast and you can put links there. I will indeed do that. And for those who listen, who are Kelby One members, no, we haven't changed our names uh, to protect the <laughs> guilty. 
uh, on Kelby One, uh, he's known as Chicky or Chi- yeah. <laughs> or Chiki Nando, uh, and I'm Doc. So, yeah, sadly, guys, it's the same two two fellas. So, yeah, well, now that you say that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ras, now that you say that, if you go www.chikinando.com and whatever, uh, you, you mean that with Chiki, it's uh, with an I and not with double E. So you, you'll find me links to my socials and whatever. I'll be sure to put that in the text for this episode. Um, and then people can ask you why you spell it Chiki when Scott calls you Chiki. And that's a whole different conversation. Oh, yes. We'll have a different that conversation some other time. <laughs> okay. So, Nando, uh, let's get this kicked off. Uh, you've okay. taken the time to think, I think, very well about the kinds of questions that a still photographer is going to ask when they start to look at using video. And you're talking about doing video on the camera that this person already owns, right? Exactly. It's it's about leveraging the, the the cameras we have that we do all our photography, most of them do video in a very serious way, and most of photographers are not using that. So the idea was, okay, I have my small business, I'm a photographer, even uh, I might do this as a second job or something. I want to do some videos to promote my small business. I cannot pay for a, a professional to do that, and so I want to do it myself and I have no clue on video, so how can I start? And then that, that was the idea behind this. I think it's a great place, so let's get going. Okay, so um, my first question for you, Russ, it's uh, I, I'm looking at the, the camera and, and I see all these settings on video. I went through the menus and I really don't know which one are important. It, I, I know that some I need to make a good um, a good decision, otherwise it will be a mess in the future. So out of the several different video formats like 4K and Full HD and so on, uh, do you recommend a particular one if the final destination will be the web? I think this is a very good question. We certainly see a lot of excitement and also a lot of noise about everything having to be 4K. 4K looks beautiful. It's a great, great format, but the bandwidth demands of it are enormous. And then if you're making these really great videos at 4K bandwidth, and then you have to compress them so they work on the web, you're doing an awful lot of work and using a lot of CPU and storage for something that folks really aren't going to see. So in general, when we look at available bandwidth for traditional web services today, full HD, it really is the way to go. You know, you're going to get a nice big video image when you play it back through one of the hosting services like YouTube or Vimeo, it's not going to be tiny. The quality is going to look great. We also consider the resolution of the screens that we play back on, and it's going to look terrific. So unless you are doing stuff for cinematic purposes, and that's not the use case you just described, why not start with f- full HD or what we call 2K or 1920 by 1080 or 1080p or 1080i, depending upon how it's labeled in your camera. And that can be one of the challenges because sadly, manufacturers don't talk to each other and they all use different words to mean the same thing. So we're going to use the term full HD, or which will refer to 1080p, 1920 by 1080 for our conversation. Does that work for you? Yeah, sure. Okay, so it's it makes sense to me. Your explanation was clear as usual. 
So um, now that uh, I, now I can go with full HD, um, I see things like MOV and MP4 as formats, as well as along other options like frame rate, IPB, all I. What do I need to know about those? Well, let's start with the first two that you brought up. MOV and MPG or MPEG-4 are video compression algorithms. They may or may not be based around a very common compression tool called H.264. And all it means is that if you're recording with an output for MOV, that is Apple QuickTime ready. If you're recording with an MPG uh, format, that's pretty much ready for viewing on most devices that have an MPEG-4 decoder. Now, the good news is if you're recording video, as you say, for your business, you're probably going to be hosting that either on a website or through one of the hosting providers and using a dynamic link. And most of the folks are happy to take MOV files. Uh, the H.264 encoder is very efficient. It also provides for good selectivity in terms of the audio. So if you have an option, there's no harm in choosing MOV. If you forget, there's no harm in using MPEG-4 either. You just may need a different player if you're going to play it directly. Okay. Now, you also asked about frame rates and encoding methodologies. So frame rates, I think we should talk about a little bit more separately because I think there's a bit of confusion around that. But I do want to get past some of this jargon that we all run into. So all I simply means that each frame of video at whatever frame rate you are filming at is individually encoded. And that means that you can do frame by frame, literally frame by frame editing. IPB records frames in chunks. So if you don't need to do frame by frame editing, you're going to get a smaller file and you can still do very, very tight edits. It's just not at a frame by frame level. All I will result in larger files, but also gives you more to work with. It's not the same as raw and JPEG. Uh, the quality is the same. It's really just how much flexibility you have in the edit. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Okay. So now that we have uh, the video formats taken care of, uh, I guess I'm going to need a tripod, right? Oh, and I heard about specific video tripod hats. Will I need one of those or can I use my photography ball head? Because I, I heard video leveling is particularly important. Is, is that true? Well, you're absolutely right. We have to make sure that our video is properly leveled because, you know, a tilted horizon, just like in a still photograph, is going to scream at people. Now, one of the things that we're going to do in video that we probably aren't doing in stills unless we're doing motion in long time lapse is we may do what we call a side-to-side -side move or a pan, or we may do an up-down move that we call a tilt. Video tripod heads, specifically video heads, will have arms that extend from the head. The longer the arm, the more finite control of the movements you have. With a ball head, a ball head moves literally in every direction. And so it's easier with a ball head as you're doing a move to come off level and then have to correct for it. And you don't want to be correcting for that in post because that needs, well, more sophisticated software. And it also chews up and crops in on your video. So if you're going to do video seriously, what I suggest to most folks is 
Hey, maybe you don't need to go buy a dedicated video tripod, but you could go get yourself a video head and just unscrew your ball head, put your video head on, and now you've got a dedicated pan and tilt movement. And the longer the arms that you get on the head, the more finite those moves are. Now, let's suppose that you're just doing a one-up and there's no movements at all. Then there's no reason not to use a ball head. It really depends on the level of complexity in the move that you're looking for. Okay, makes sense uh, as, as usual. So tripods, another one figured out. So um, I'm thinking, okay, next step, I need to know what a good lens choice would be. And let's say I want to record myself talking. Uh, do you recommend a tight plan with just me speaking or shall I include some of the environments? Uh, because I'm, I'm trying to understand the lens I should use. And then I heard the 4K video, there is a cropping factor of 1.7 which is even higher than an APS-C sensor. Is that true? Does it apply also when we are recording full HD? And actually, does the camera record just the full HD pixel size, 1920 by 1080, or does it record more pixels and then just keeps that aspect ratio? Okay, buddy, we've been at this together a long time. You know the most common answer in photography? Well, it's also the most common answer in video. And the answer is, it depends. It depends on the camera whether uh, it's actually using the full frame and doing either what's called pixel binning or line skipping, or if it's actually cropping in. Now, in the case of a lot of cameras that are doing 4K, they are cropping in but not always. True video cameras, dedicated video cameras don't crop in. And there are even some mirrorless cameras that will shoot 4K that are not cropping in. We've recently seen some releases of some new mirrorless that do 4K, but they have that very aggressive crop, so it's gonna change from camera to camera. In terms of the lens choice, you really want to choose a focal length that's going to fit the needs that you have. Make sure that you're getting as much filling the frame as is reasonable, use background if appropriate. But if you're really trying to focus attention on a subject, get in tight. It's very much like still photography, not a whole lot different. Use your rules of composition, your guidelines, set yourself up accordingly. And once you've got that light, that lens set up, the only challenge, when, especially if you're recording yourself, is preventing yourself from doing the bob and weave while you're talking. So your head's not walling all over the place like a Bozo the Clown punching bag. You kind of got to sit pretty still. But for the most part, it's, it's actually a lot easier than people think it is. Look at the lens. Have a microphone on your, on your person or a shotgun on the camera. Look at the lens and just keep eye contact with the lens. Don't look anywhere else because that gets creepy. Okay, well, still on the lens side and apart from focal lens, uh, I heard there are different focus systems on the lens and ones are louder and slower than the others. And I think that can affect video. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this actually brings about the whole question about autofocus in video. Sadly, most DSLR cameras do a very poor job at autofocus with video. Um, Canon has been the historical exception because they've got a proprietary focus system called Dual Pixel AF. And their DSLR cameras do a stunningly good job autofocusing with video. Mirrorless cameras are different because they're always autofocusing at the sensor 
and they all tend to work very, very well. I think the real consideration here is how much noise is that lens making when focusing is occurring and how much of that is going to get picked up. So Canon, Nikon, other vendors are starting to build lenses using what are called stepping motors. And sadly, every vendor uses a different name to refer to these lenses. Canon calls theirs STM lenses. They're certainly not the only folks using step motors and stepping motors are designed to be very quiet. So consequently, if the lens is focusing while the video is being recorded, even if you're using the internal microphone that's built into the camera, which really you never should do, you're not going to get the sound of focus noise. Go back to an older lens it might be beautiful optically, but the motors kick in and you know, they're going to sound like a truck going down the street just because of the nature of the motors being very, very loud. Uh, when we take the practice to record our audio off camera using either an external microphone, or as you mentioned, you had uh, one of those zoom recorders. When you record your audio there and then just put it into your video project, you're going to get way better audio than using the microphone built into the camera. And it's still going to be better than even mounting a microphone on the camera and using the microphone input on the camera. Make sense. Makes sense, total sense. Okay, still on the focusing thing. And how, how do I adjust focus? I, I mean, I'm thinking, I, I've, I've seen um, some weirds, uh, I'll call those devices to do focusing when people are using um, a DSLR to, to shoot video. Um, how, do you, how do I control that? Do I really need one of those for this approach? I think you're talking about the kind of device that we call a follow focus. It involves putting a gear band or strap uh, on your lens. If the lens is not already fitted with a particular uh, brand, what you guys can't see right now, because this is an audio podcast is I'm holding up. So Fernando can see a cinema lens and it's got an dot eight pitch ring built right into it. These lenses are designed to be used with follow focus units because they do not focus automatically. They've also got a very long focus throw, very, very different from the lenses we use on our DSLR and our mirrorless cameras. The use of a follow focus is, I would say, a pretty darn good idea if you're doing manual focus because now you're not touching the lens directly. The follow focus gearing engages with the strap or the geared teeth that are built into the lens and you can get very smooth focus movements. One of the things that professional cinematographers will often do, well, in true cinema, there is a dedicated role called the focus puller. The only job that person has is to focus. But even if you're doing a one up with follow focus units, you can mark them or sometimes even set a peg between your close focus point and your far focus point. So moving between two predefined focus points is very easy. Honestly, for us doing the kind of thing that you're just talking about, creating a small promotional video, video for your business, as long as you can preset your focus, you don't need one of these guys. Even if you're going to do a side-by-side -side interview, perhaps two people in your company talking about a new service or a new offering, make them the same distance from the sensor plane, pre-focus, choose the amount of depth of field you want, and then don't worry about it anymore. 
Keep it simple. Okay. Well, makes total sense. So it seems we're getting close now. So let's talk about aperture and, and shutter speed. Are there specific settings you recommend? Anything regarding ISO too? Absolutely. So remember we said earlier, we we're gonna come back and we were gonna talk about frame rate. So the frame rate that you choose should be selected based on the nature of your content. Video by default, has always been somewhere in the 30 frames per second range. Now, for those in North America, you may see that as 29.97. I can tell you that it has everything to do with NTSC clocking, and don't worry about it. So if you've got normal folks talking to each other, even people walking down the street, regular everyday motion, or people stand, sitting at a table or standing talking, Choose either 29.97 or 30 frames per second as your frame rate. Going faster is going to chew up your storage a lot faster, going to chew up your battery a lot faster, and also you may be recording frames that you don't need. We only need to go to higher frame rates if we're going to want to invoke slow motion, and based on the context of what you talked about, probably not a big case of in this particular workflow or this scenario. If you want a filmic look, meaning it looks like old-style cinema, you can drop down to 24 frames per second or, again, through this uh, clocking issue, 23.97. The reason I bring this up is because it directly impacts your shutter speed. So let's suppose that we chose 29.97 or 30 frames per second for our video. Our shutter speed is then 1 60th of a second. That's it. It's not negotiable. In fact, we don't want the shutter speed to climb higher than that because any movement that does happen, even the turn of a head, is going to start to look choppy. We're actually expecting a certain amount of what we call motion blur to happen on a frame-to-frame -frame basis. So it's really simple. Take whatever your frame rate is, whatever you choose, double it, put one, put one on top of it, and that's your shutter speed, and you lock that in. So... Yeah, we're already starting to think about putting the camera in manual. The next step that we're going to choose is we're going to choose an aperture that's going to give us the depth of field we want. Now, if you're doing a one-up, and I'm looking at you right now on the camera as we're recording this, eh, I'd probably try to set an aperture 5.6371 f8 for the focal length of lens that you're using to get you and to get that beautiful print that's behind you properly in focus but not much more than that. And again, we're going to lock in our aperture at the word go, so we're not going to be varying it over time. This brings us to the final control, our ISO. In video, we don't actually have the concept of ISO. We have the concept of gain. Gain is like the old volume control on old amplifiers. Well, ISO is really the volume control for brightness. And the beauty of video, because the frame size is smaller, and because in our example, we're seeing 30 of those frames every second, we don't have the big worries about digital noise that we used to have with stills. So most cameras have a base ISO for video, and it's probably higher than you think. Most of the time, it's ISO 800 or ISO 1000. So don't be afraid to manipulate the ISO. And the way I coach people to do this, pick your frame rate, that defines your shutter speed. Pick an aperture that's gonna give you the depth of field you want, 
Now adjust the ISO until you like the brightness. And that's it. There's no more to it than that. You may find you need to supplement the available light with some lighting. LED panels are a very inexpensive and very color correct way to do that. But think about the only real variable you have is ISO. And for the folks who are getting started, can you use auto ISO? Actually, yes, you can. Put the camera in manual mode, set your shutter speed, set your aperture, set the ISO to auto, and you'll be surprised at how really good it looks. Oh, well, um, you, you made it uh, look uh, simple and easy. Because it is. Um, <laughs> it really is. So well, uh, I hope so. So you mentioned light, and I'm thinking, okay, um, uh, I look at uh, TV studios and I see lights, uh, uh, complex light setups with kicker lights and backlights and so on and so forth. And do I need, do you recommend a, a, a light uh, pattern, uh, something that I should take care of? One light, two lights, three lights, more than that? Well, it depends on what your goal is. I mean, a lot of the times what we see in TV studios are newsrooms. And newsrooms go for very flat lighting. So there's going to be a lot of panels. There are going to be panels lighting the talent, panels lighting the backdrop, panels lighting the desk, kickers on the desk to fill in shadows. It's a very complex lighting environment. To be honest, for most of us, it's way more than we need. In fact, you can do very, very successful video with just a couple of LED panels. You know, set them about 30 degrees off center, left and right of your, of your camera, point them at your talent and you're good to go. If you really want to get that TV look, uh, you're gonna go online and uh, use your search engine of choice and search for three-point lighting. And three-point lighting basically means you're lighting your talent from three edges, one in front, one literally directly behind. So 180 degrees to your main light, and then another light 90 degrees to those, uh, typically used for lighting a hair or that sort of thing. <coughs> and that would be, that kicker light would typically be used for lighting the hair or that sort of thing, just to create separation off the background. There may be a light used on the backdrop, but in general, you wanna keep the viewer's attention on the talent, just like stills. If we give people too much to look at, they get annoyed and stop looking at anything. So three-point lighting is about as complex as most anybody needs to get, but, it, but really, even if you don't have the time to do that, just a couple of decent LED panels. The challenge with LED panels is we look at them and we go, wow, this is too dim for stills, and most of them are, but they're ideal for video. And you can get them that'll run on AC power or run on batteries. So if you have to do work out in the field, you're good to go. Okay, well, um, that sounds, again, easy. So I'm thinking, why shouldn't all photographers actually do something with video? And, well, but going back when, when we talked about focusing and, and, and the noise that the lens could make, and we're mentioning audio, and I think I heard audio is very important part of video. Uh, and many people seem to forget that. Um, do you? Well, you, you mentioned this before. You do recommend an external microphone. Any particular one? Because I know there's different kinds of microphones with different recording patterns. And what, what, what can you tell me about that? 
Well, I think it's safe to say, and I sure didn't create this expression, uh, bad audio destroys good video faster than anything uh, because we are attuned to being able to listen to stuff. It really depends on what you're trying to record that will define the nature of the microphone that you use. Now, let's go back to your example, somebody recording video for their business. The easiest route is with a lavalier. That's a small microphone that'll clip to the talent's clothing. Um, used to be that we used to work really, really hard to hide them. Uh, you may choose to do that, but you don't really have to anymore because they're very small. Now, whether that lavalier is wired or wireless really depends on your budget. I personally prefer wireless because I'm clumsy and I trip on wires and pull things over. But even if you can't afford that, you can get some very, very good wired lavaliers. And where you get them is from the same companies that you would look at for traditional high quality stage microphones and radio microphones, for example. So, you know, look at stuff from Sennheiser and stuff from Rode, uh, very, very high quality stuff. Sure does some beautiful lavaliers. Uh, Sony, in fact, because Sony's big in television, does a really, really nice wireless lavalier kit. And what you're going to do is you're going to mic individually each of your, your talent members, unless you've got a dedicated sound person. If you have a dedicated sound person, you can get away with a single microphone. You're going to put what we call a shotgun, a long, thin microphone with a very, very narrow uh, collection pattern. You talked about that. And we're going to put that on a boom. And the idea of the sound person's job is to point the shotgun at the speaker, getting the microphone as close as possible to the speaker without having it come into frame. Because we've all seen television shows and videos where this long black tube suddenly comes in above the talent's head and it completely destroys the illusion. We call that breaking the, uh, breaking the fourth dimension. It just doesn't work. So I think lavaliers are a great way to go. They tend to be a bit more expensive, but a good set of lavaliers will last you a really long time. Now, if you're really strapped and you're really on a budget, you can absolutely start with a shot, what we call a shotgun, either monochrome, monochrome, either monophonic or stereophonic, mounted in the hot shoe of the camera and plugged directly into the microphone input. Now, the challenge with these guys is that they're all high impedance microphones, so you tend to get more noise. But if you get one from, again, say Rode or Sennheiser, they don't have to be massive. They will typically come with a good wind screen or pop filter, and you can get, well, we call them dead cats, but basically it's a fur bag that's used to interrupt any wind noise uh, that will work with these guys. So for a lot of run-and-gun shooters, folks who have to do video without a lot of studio setup, uh, these on-camera shotgun mics are really great. I use some of the road ones myself for some of my field work. Uh, audio quality is very good. But if I'm going to do an interview or we're going to record a presentation, I'm always going to suggest going with lavaliers. Okay, so um, let's say that I'm recording this audio, not in my camera, but using an external microphone. Uh, sorry, an external recorder, like the Zoom we, we mentioned earlier. Um, how is it going to be to sync audio and video? Is there any particular technique that I should be aware of? Well, it depends on the software that you're going to use to do your final edits. Some software has the ability to auto-sync uh, tracks. I always record audio in the camera. 
not for playback, but for what we call scratch. And one of the oldest tricks in the book, you remember seeing uh, shorts about how people made films where there was a clapper, where a board came down and it went bang? The whole idea of the clapper is not only to hold information about the particular clip or cut that's being shot, but that clap sound was used to synchronize the closing in the film with the audio, because audio was always recorded completely separately. So what I will often coach people to do is just put a clap in. Like, don't go out and buy software, clap your hands. And then when you bring your video and your audio together, you'll look at your video with its embedded audio that you will mute out later, and your external audio, like you've recorded on your Zoom. And as you look at the waveform, you know what you're gonna see? You're gonna see a big spike. Line the spikes up, you're done. No problem. It's that easy. Well, it, it really seems easy. So I guess this will be my last question for today. And now that we're talking about editing, uh, what software do you use for video editing? Uh, well, I mean, what, what should I use? Uh, do I need, does it need to support some kind of codec or some way to export into YouTube or Vimeo? Or what can you tell me about that? Well, it's interesting, you know, because there's a lot of there's a lot of software that sometimes comes with a computer or that you can get free, you know, bundled with computers. Uh, if you're a Macintosh user, you get iMovie, which is actually a pretty darn good video editor. On the Windows side, I don't know that you get Windows Movie Maker in included anymore. But, I don't think so. But there's really, there's all kinds of free stuff. My coaching to people is that learning to edit video and the related audio, that's a separate process. Well, you teach Lightroom. When you teach Lightroom, that's different from teaching photography, right? Yep. So learning to edit is a different thing as well. And my guidance to folks is, if you're gonna do this with any kind of seriousness, and let's use your example of doing video for your business, you're not gonna do one. You've got to be constantly coming back with new content that's going to create people to come back and keep them interested. So that means you're not going to be doing a one-off edit. You're going to do more. And you might want to put in titling, and you might want to put in very simple effects like a lower third to identify who's talking, or a URL, where do I find, fernandosantos.com. This titling, the good embedding of audio, the ability to correct for any... Uh, let's say missed horizons or to apply proper coloration, maybe the light wasn't just right, to correct for audio bad sound, maybe a microphone level was a little too low, maybe it was too high, maybe we've got a little bit of clipping happening. I think you're better served by getting a proper editing app and learning it right from the word go. Now you can go and you can buy that. Now for example, if you're a and Adobe Creative Cloud, the full thing subscriber, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have access to Premiere Pro, which is a very good product. And I do always suggest find a tool that runs on either PC or Macintosh. Don't be bound by any particular operating system. The benefit there is now if you're sharing the work with somebody else, one project can be used on different platforms, and you can share the work and share the labor. Like if you and I were editing a video, you're a Windows user. I'm a Mac user. 
It would be really important that we could work on the same project file without having to do any transcoding or any nonsense like that. So the tool that I recommend comes from Blackmagic Design. Yeah, that's the company that makes the high-end TV switchers and broadcast gear. They have a software product called DaVinci Resolve. Now, Resolve used to be super expensive. And there is still a studio version, and Resolve Studio allows multiple people to work on the same project at the same time. But for most of us, we don't need that level of sophistication. So you can head over to Blackmagic Design, and I will put a link in the podcast notes, and you can download DaVinci Resolve single-user version for free. This is the same DaVinci Resolve that top-line Hollywood colorists, audio editors, and video editors are using. So there's an enormous amount of power. It is a very consistent, nonlinear editor. But it brings into mind the concept of video no, video and audio nodes as opposed to the more Photoshop-like concept of layers. We can still have multiple tracks, multiple video tracks, multiple audio tracks, multiple title tracks. I think there's some other benefits as well. Folks get into recording and editing video and they say, oh, I'd like to do some special effects. Well, now I've got to go out and license After Effects. Or I've got to go out and license something that does what After Effects does. Oh, I've got to go out and I've got to buy titling. Or I've got to go out and buy now a whole bunch of audio plugins so I can get the compressor that I want. That's all in Resolve because Resolve includes DaVinci Fusion, which is a full effects suite, and it includes Fairlight Audio. So Blackmagic bought the Fairlight family of products, big studio audio. In fact, they still sell, sell the very expensive studio mixing boards, but all the software for Fairlight Audio is also built into Resolve. And to come back to your final question, how do I get this stuff to YouTube and to Vimeo? All the presets are predefined. So you say, where am I going? I'm going 2K to YouTube. And I would like it to stream. Couple of checkboxes, put it to your render queue, and when you're ready, click go. It will actually build the video in the background so you can work on other stuff. And it prepares a YouTube ready file and then you just upload it to YouTube. They don't have to transcode it. So there's not a lot of wasted time between your upload and the thing going live. And you can also encode all your metadata for your uh, search engine optimization and all that stuff in the package that goes to YouTube or Vimeo or wherever you're gonna put it. You can of course also create a number of different expert presets if for example you've got a specific service and they have very particular requirements you just make the settings you save that as an export preset and it's always there available to you so yeah resolve is a little bit higher end it's certainly got a longer learning curve than say iMovie would but in the end you've got a lot more to work with so if you think your business is worth it then it's worth learning and there's a bunch of free tutorials out there we just need to convince the folks at Kelby One to do resolve classes. <laughs> well, but that's another story. <laughs> well, <laughs> Russ, it, it's 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 amazing to to listening to you making all this that seems complicated so easy. And actually, I'm I, I mean I'm sold. I'm I'm going to record a video, um, and maybe we can do this again sometime in the future, pretending that now I'm 
shooting video for my customers. Who knows? Which I'm not, but um, I may end up doing so. But you might be. Oh, well. And that's oh, yes. a, this is a really important point you're making. When we look at the visual creative arts and we look at the areas of growth, the only area in creative arts, visual arts, that's growing is video. Stills is actually sliding. Now, imagine you are a professional stills photographer and you can now offer your customer both great stills and great video. The industry calls this the hybrid creative. You're an image maker. You're no longer a photographer and or a videographer. You're an image maker because you don't care about the platform for delivery. And it's very interesting listening to other professional photographers who say, yeah, no, never did, never did video. Uh, in fact, I was listening to Lindsay Adler just the other day. She was on a panel at BNH talking about the EOS R, the new Canon mirrorless camera. And she was saying how she's had to change her way of thinking, not to get away from being the brilliant stills photographer that she is, but also to be able to offer video to her clients herself. That changes the game. It differentiates you from your competition. So for a guy like you, who's already well-respected as a professional photographer, when you're ready and you add video to your repertoire and you become this hybrid, you're a rock star because not everybody else can do it. And they're not going to do it with the same level of commitment to quality that you're already doing in your still work. Well, that's certainly good advice. It's good advice for me and for all your listeners that uh, are still just shooting uh, photography and they should be doing video too. Well, I have no further questions for today. I'm really happy. It was really great to be here with you. Um, I don't know if you have any questions for me, <laughs> but um, certainly not about video. Well, I've only got one question. It is about video. Um, when we end this call, you're going to go shoot some, right? Uh, I will. <laughs> okay. That's all we can ask for. Uh, so thanks very much. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening in. Uh, I am so sincerely grateful to have uh, Fernando here with us today. I think this conversation model works very well to get the message across. And I encourage everyone to go out and give video a shot. If you do have questions on any photo or video topic, you can always email me directly at ross at thephotovideoguy.ca, and I will help you out. I typically answer within 24 hours of receiving a request for information. More of this is going to come. Uh, I think that Fernando's onto a really great idea here, and I like the graded approach that he's taking. I'm going to get started. Now I want to start doing stuff for customers. Where do we go from there? So you'll hear from both of us again. In the interim, thanks very much for listening, for watching, and for reading. And until next time, peace.